Everybody, welcome to another installment of Show to Be with Mike G, the show of a life, the show of the police, the show of Nebraska's Saddle Creek, Chapel Hill around the early 90s, and Scotch with Ardbeg and Glenn Morangie's U.S. Central brand ambassador, Mr. Dan Kroll. A very, very thought-provoking chat with Dan. Dan comes from a very interesting background as a drummer, musician, artist, shifting into hospitality and now traveling all around speaking the praises of Scotch Glenmorangie and Ardbeg specifically. In a sense, this is a philosophical chat, Dan, chatting about the universe, our purposes, punk ethos, so many things. So I hope you guys really enjoy this chat with Mr. Dan Kroll of Ardbeg and Glenmorangie. I was born in North Dakota, but uh, we weren't there long. No. So, uh, 77 uh, Air Force family. So, my dad was stationed there, and he was just about to be transferred when I was born. So, uh, he was transferred to uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, so we bounced about, around a bit, but he retired from the Air Force uh, in Omaha, where he and my mom were born. So, really? I've been in Omaha since I was five. Okay, so pretty stable, unlike a lot of military Yeah, families. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Being the seventh of seven helps uh, in terms of... My being on the tail end of the chaos. Everybody's got to be really tired by that point. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how my mom did it. I mean, I just she's she's a machine, so you know, good for her. But uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't something that was a real big. We, I think we want. I want to say we moved three times in town. Yeah, uh, and one, two, three times before I got to uh, New Hampshire, and then the moving was basically over until Man. I moved out. That's crazy. So I moved around a bit too. My dad was, he was in the restaurant business. Oh, very cool. So operations typically. And so we would move probably like every four years, just like clockwork, even up until my junior year of high school. So really, really late. But so the the question I have for you is like a kid that kind of moved a bit. What centered you? What kind of became your friends? Because it's hard to be social and meet people. Truly. Yeah. Um, Well, the 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 broader answer is uh, a big family. Uh, yeah. You sort of you sort of take your circle with you uh, when you're part of a big family. But yeah. I was the oops kid. I mean, the, the oops it kid. wasn't a huge gap. My my oldest sister uh, is ten years older than me. Oh, that's that, not that, so that, that, seven yeah. kids, but it's six kids in seven years and seven kids in ten years. So there was that. The only real gap that existed was yeah. between myself and my siblings, and and uh, so on a broader scale, we all sort of just bounced around the country together, but. When it came time for me to try to establish a um, you know consistent group of friends or, or you know peer group, yeah, uh, you know I had the first half of grade school, second half of grade school, uh, junior high, and then high school. So there was a, a four different significant pods. Those chunks are hard. Yeah. Yeah. So you do that thing where you learn how to um, you learn how to be self-deprecating. You learn how to be sort of engaging without drawing too much attention to yourself and all yeah. that sort of thing. When um, so when you what was the weekend? rigmarole for you what, what was something that you typically did because oh, i wasn't at like, parties man, as, you know? uh, as a as a as a kid as yeah. a little kid um you know actually when i was real real small we traveled a lot you know and camping trips and fishing okay, trips and yeah. so on and so forth as the as sort of the crew would be we'd be hauling down the interstate in some massive car and there'd be people counting the heads in the car yeah. out, that's <laughs> nine people in that car oh my god <laughs> so uh it, there was a lot of that but uh by the time i uh, by the time that's the sort of the family unit started to just uh, splinter apart and kids yeah. growing up and, and moving out, I suppose you know there was there was all kinds of stuff, uh, scouts and 4-H and all those things that you do yeah. in the Midwest that uh, that take up your weekend time. So pretty nat- nature based stuff. Yeah, my dad was big into. We moved onto an acreage when I was uh, I want to say ten, eleven. Really? Yeah, he was. It was in the middle of well, not the middle. It was south of Omaha, but yeah. it was he was big into. Wanting to capture that uh, that rural lifestyle in in an urban setting. And what so, about uh, animals and such? Yep, yep. I had uh, my sister had a horse and I had a rabbit and my no, brother okay. had a cow and 
So we all sort of raised them in that in that 4-H environment. And you guys grow anything there too? Uh, no, it wasn't quite that big. Okay. Um, we didn't. There wasn't really any gardening. Although I did have a pumpkin patch as a kid, so uh, that was that was kind of <laughs> kind of my uh, experiment though, yeah. in uh, in the um, agrarian lifestyle. But but it does connect you to something that maybe is different now in this fast-paced booze industry, right? Like yeah. starting from that. Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, the connection to the soil and 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 my actually my father-in-law is a farmer. Yeah. So there's there's that. Sort Sort of full circle connection to uh, um, growing things and consuming things and having that be a uh, an organic and uh, uh, you know life cycle thing yeah. uh, that you have to, that you have to pay attention to you have to nurture it you got to pay attention to things like rain and, and you know the, the kinds of things you can't control that's right and it's good I think that that's an in a larger sociological sense that's nice because we've got everything else yep. it's all so controlled. Oh my we can goodness, po- yeah. we can schedule posts. We know exactly how many friends yep. we've got. You know, yep. So it's nice to come from that organic kind of analog world. Yep. It's it's hum- it's not that it's humbling, but it gives you a sense of. It's weird how you can develop a sense of uh, control of the over the arc of your life, which is you know obviously illusory to a certain degree. Yeah. But uh, there's a certain amount of control that can be wrestled out of understanding how little control you really have. That's a great uh, point. You're freed by your yeah, admittance we, that you've got no control at all. I don't think that you can sit around and obsess about the things you can't control. You just have to be really good at identifying accurately yeah. which is which. And uh, and you know, I think there's a tremendous source of stress associated with with misdiagnosing what is what you can and what you can't control. Yeah. So if you're honest with yourself and you try to you know you, you do your best to try to diagnose without letting yourself off of a hook or without putting yourself onto superfluous hooks. You you can find a path that uh, that puts you in a, in a pretty good position there. Yeah, that's actually I think that's maybe one of the most important things about living life. Actually, I think so. You know, um, just admit that you don't know and that you have no control, and just let life hit you the yeah, way it will. You know, you, is I mean, as long as there's a uh, an element of the curiosity that would go with pursuing a greater degree of. Uh, diagnostic skills yeah, yeah and uh and a greater degree of control of the things that you can as long as it's not control over other people or, right, or right. the arc of their life um yeah i mean I, if you're if you're disciplined in your approach and trying to find where uh that where the crest of that wave is that you can ride mm-hmm. and uh, and maintain some some forward momentum between control and chaos then uh um then it's then it's it's a bit like surfing. It's a yeah. constantly forward momentum. Do do you think that what I find as an inquisitive nature towards culture, which which Scotch is a great way to enter totally. into it, yeah, was that something that your folks and your family were always kind of they're very open to different cultures, open new experiences. Yeah, and that one of the things that you run into when you move around a lot as a kid is a lot of different people, a lot of yeah. different kids, a lot of different families, and. and uh, as much as you know, 4-H might have been a thing that uh, there was a little more homogenous in terms of demographics. Right. Uh, being involved in, in Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts wasn't. Uh, there was a there was a broad demographic. I lived, I lived, you know, when I started to kind of uh, gel into a into a conscious critter. Uh, mm-hmm. That was in South Omaha in Nebraska, and it's a pretty diverse it's a pretty diverse it? place. Yeah, a, a fairly tremendous Latino influence. Really? Uh, I had yeah, no idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, South Omaha is, uh, um, is, is not in so much anymore. There's a, there's a pretty strong Somali population in South Omaha these That's days, That's interesting, too. yeah. I so, idea. yeah, it's a, it's a more diverse place than you might think looking at it on a map. We, I think because it's so landlocked, right, that people just assume yeah. that, well, it's just got to be white people. It's just got to be, yeah, yeah. Uh, basically white and rural, and, and it's... Really, no. Omaha nowadays, the greater metro area is something on the six to six fifty uh, wow. in terms of population. Yeah. It's a relatively huge place for a little town. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. still well, got its littleness. Sense, right? yeah. yeah, it's still it's big enough to be interesting and little enough not to be full of itself. Yeah, which um, is great because we're actually a little bit full of ourselves. Well, you know, and the thing about anyway. the thing about Austin is that uh, people people really want to be here. The th- one of the things that I that I try to explain as a as the hidden gem of Omaha is that people don't move there to say they're from there. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's not that's not the first it's true, yeah. It's not the first segment of the sleeve that they wear. So, instead, it's a bit people who are it's like going and touring Glamorgy. If yeah. you are there, you got to want to be there. 
It's not near other things. It's nothing unless you're really into zoos or Boys Town. Yeah, there really isn't anything that ha- that is a national or international calling card. College World Series twice two weeks. Ago. <laughs> but there's nothing the big, really big about Omaha. There, right? yeah. yeah, that's going to be a calling card that you're going to sit at LAX or something and say, "Yeah, I'm going to Omaha," and then kind of you know polish your own turds to a certain degree and and congratulate yourself on yeah. being a part of that. So the people that are there, are there on purpose. They're yeah. there for a purpose, and they're and they're certainly not the the sort of people, by and large, who are going to draw a tremendous amount of attention to who it is that they are or what it is that they're trying to do. They just go about the business of doing and being those things. Being, yeah, it's an amazing thing, and that's what we, yeah, we got to talk about this Omaha piece because very influential for me as a, as a yeah. musician, quote unquote, sure. right? But as a drummer and that music bug, when did that find you? Um, I was, I want to say, thirteen. Uh, Perfect and, age uh, for it. Yeah, I it was a little late. I played piano for a little while. My oh, sister really? and I took uh, lessons from the same gal, who's who was a, a gem and absolutely influential on on being a good and critical listener. Yeah, uh, and understanding that uh, that musicianship, even though as a six or seven or eight year old, I didn't I didn't have, uh, and I still fight that little tiny kid inside who doesn't necessarily have a. a a strong degree of of um, uh, discipline in uh, terms of right, things right. like practice, practicing. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm still that kid. I'm still that kind of lazy little kid. Scales and, uh, are the worst. So yeah, yeah. so it's it, it actually kind of helps to be thrust into a situation where my teacher was like, "You haven't touched a keyboard since the last time I saw you, have you?" <laughs> no. And so you know, and it's yeah. obvious, and then, then your sort of your internal sense of pride is like, "Nah, that's not me." I'm not going to sit and waste my dad's money yeah. and be a chunky player for the rest of my life. So um, by the time piano was a thing that wasn't necessarily striking a match for me, mm. uh, I had met I had met a couple of people who, who played drums, and I thought I, I liked the physicality of it. And uh, Did you like the tonality of it? Because melody, in a sense, is kind of removed. It's patterns instead of melody, in my opinion, with drums, you know? Yeah, shapes and dynamics. That's right, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. And a, a sculpting a bit of... Uh, um, the connective tissue that binds everybody together, Skeletons, which yeah. I mean, it, uh, tonality is one thing, but uh, but rhythm is uh, everybody's got a metronome built into them. So yeah. there's Tapping something. Tapping our foots all the time, right? Yeah, I mean, your heartbeat is a thing that you're born with, and yeah. you die, and you after it goes, you're dead. Uh, so all I, you know, it was actually the thing that occurred to me. The the, the light bulb went on uh, when my neighbor down the street, who was my best friend at the time, um, he did two things. His mother bought him a snare drum. And uh, and the police's third record, uh, Zanyana Mandata. Oh yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I I looked at one and listened to the other one and put the two together and <laughs> bought the drum from him <laughs> within a fairly short period of time and it was kind of over after that. I can't imagine how you play beats then because Stuart Copeland is so strange. Dude. Well, it's good to st- it's good to start uh, by modeling your conception of the instrument and its uh, and its place in music after somebody who does not conform uh, to any real norms. And so you don't, you don't, it's not like you have to fight your way out of some um, uh, prison, some intellectual prison that you, that you accidentally built because you sat around listening to, and there is nothing wrong with (laughs) Phil Rudd from ACDC. I love that guy. Phil Rudd is solid. Oh yeah. (laughs) But that's it. He throws it it down. And, and that's, and that's the point. If you took, if you took a Stuart Copeland and Phil Rudd and you jammed them together, you would have a disciplinarian who yeah. who takes care of business and and nails the beat on the top of its head right, with a right. massive hammer, and then you've got another guy who uh, who's pushing and pulling and shoving yeah. things around and and making the whole concept of, of rhythmic interaction mm. into his sort of plaything. Yeah, in well, a to, really to, interesting way. And to have that be accessible pop music still boggles <laughs> my mind. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the first record, like Roxanne and stuff, is very, very straightforward. Yep. Even though yep. that one's just slightly more uh, rhythmic and a little off tempo. But then, once you get into uh, what is it on the moon? Dance uh, on walking, the moon. Uh, on walking the moon. The moon yeah. yeah, I mean, like stuff like that, where the drums are just—they're kind of just like punching and off beats and stuff. And it's a really interesting place to start. So obviously, your mind's probably lit up with ideas. Yeah, um, and the thing was, I discovered later on that I—I um, I didn't understand. The roots of what they had come mm. from. I didn't. I knew the police before I knew what reggae was. Yeah, and yeah. so I did it backwards. I mean, kids older than me, uh, my brothers and sisters, uh, who were listening to some really formative stuff. My the first record that I remember uh, physically, sort of 
being able to put on a turntable and put a needle on it without getting yelled at was um, uh, Neil Young's After the Gold Rush, oh, my yeah. sister's record. And I listened to it until just until I had it completely memorized. My brother was a huge Beatles fan. So all of those things happened. And then my oldest brother uh, bought me my first police record. And he said, these, these guys have got something going on yeah. here. Uh, it's, it takes uh, from some diverse influences and jams them together in a way that, ha- that uh, bends the ear of the world. So maybe listen to it. Yeah. And uh, the longer that I did... And the, the more I grew up and, and started understanding what real reggae was and, and what Copeland was doing that was that was very sly and Robbie-esque, but also um, uh, Mitch Mitchell ease. Mm. And he's a, he, was a, he was a giant John Densmore fan. So you take the Doors and Hendrix and, and uh, Sly and Robbie and, and what was happening in, in the rhythm section of, the, of the, the Whalers, you know, back in the day. Yeah, yeah. And you end up with Stuart Copeland if if you yeah. if you put those things together while, and listen to them while you were growing up in uh, in Beirut. Yeah, yeah, well, that's interesting. <laughs> so and you yeah. have a tall, lanky dude who hits the drums in a weird angle, right? Yes, like, <laughs> and then you end up with that guy. Yeah, there you exactly go. right. Which is it's just a straight. He his drums do sound like how he looks, like his stature. Yeah, way, you know? yeah, he's a very physical. Even even now, you go and see him, and he hasn't. It's weird. He hasn't. Not only has he not lost a step, he's gained many stuff oh yeah he's just he just crushes not to mention what he's doing in terms of uh uh, commissioned operas and soundtracks and 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 uh um purchasing the rights to the original uh, black and white print of ben-hur and then writing a score to it really yeah uh oh no stanley kubrick's uh, spartacus but ben-hur yeah yeah, the real live silent ben-hur the black and white silent one yeah um so and he restored actually physically restored the film that's incredible and then wrote a score to it uh and i don't know if it was ever recorded but it was actually the way that it was presented to the public was with a live orchestra showing the movie with a live orchestra and then and in arenas where actual uh, horses and stuff were wandering oh around. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it was uh, it was something else. I didn't realize um, he was doing that. Yeah, so, so um, um, an immense film scoring uh, presence uh, from a fairly early uh, age. By the time the police were beginning to go away, um, Copeland was uh, becoming a film composer, film composer in his own right. His yeah. first uh, film um, soundtrack was uh, of a Francis Ford Coppola film called. Uh, Rumblefish, because yeah. oh, yeah. Francis's... I didn't know that that was him. Yeah, Black Francis's and white against kids, there, yeah. yeah, Francis's kids were big uh, police fans, and they're like, you should get that guy. So that's what they did. <laughs> I had no idea. That's incredible. So yeah. well, then it sounds like there is some kind of match made in heaven with music for you, and it takes yeah. you pretty far, right? You go, you actually study music proper at the University yeah. of Nebraska. Uh, right? went to Nebraska, studied uh, uh, percussion performance and English and psychology and things like that, and... Uh, that went uh, really well until it came time for me to decide. Okay, the band that I'm in is actually getting a little bit of interest. Uh, there's there we're getting some traction here, and there's the the original uh, stuff is is uh, compelling to me. Yeah, and I'm not done with school, so what do I do? So I I, I quit school and, yeah. uh, and well, started have, playing I mean, full time. Yeah, uh, in in that band, which which band before, is this? Gorilla Theater. So Gorilla um, Theater. Yeah, uh, which, I left school to do that. Circa ninety two, ninety three. Yeah, it was. I want to say I left school in ninety, and it was a it was a, a fairly full court press uh, until about ninety three. Yeah. Uh, when I'd been married for a year at that point, and the and the band really? sort of spun out of control. But so. how old were you then? Uh, I got married at twenty five, so that would have been uh, let's see, that would have been ninety two. Uh, yeah, so it was kind of a, it was a fairly quick process uh, between leaving school, uh, diving headlong into the band, and getting married. So, well, so was, can I ask you? So you know, yeah. this is my second marriage this time, and right I'm really on. really enjoying this one, and I. I always wonder what drives someone who has that ambition on the music side of it, which is a tumultuous thing for a relationship. Truly, like, truly. W- what, why get married then? Was it just um, the right person? Was it the right time? It was not the right time, but it was absolutely the right person. Yeah. So and it wasn't a thing that I set out with a mindset to, hey, I need to be married. It was, it was kind of a thing that I um, that hadn't crossed my mind until I met my wife. Yeah. And then it it didn't stop crossing my mind uh, basically throughout the course of um, you know our courtship and eventually marriage it was it, everything I'm doing is is um, nebulous and difficult and it's, it's tough to put your finger on there's really no process behind it this is one thing that I need yeah that, that, that I need to secure in terms of her influence in my life and because and and it's like one of those things when you love somebody and it's so clear 
then it you know that that's stable for you in some some part right like emotionally you, maybe like, you do and I, I, honestly i think it was it was actually uh, a lot of it occurred beyond my ability to understand exactly what yeah. was going on at the time because me at 25 and me at now 50 well i'm pushing 50 this next month um there's there are two decidedly different people with the same nucleus to a certain yeah. degree yeah, yeah and that nucleus was formed you know at two or three years old when you when you when you have a sense of uh, the indelible chunks of you yeah. uh, and how to keep them from um eroding into uh into the mist mm. uh, to a certain degree uh, what occurred to me that at the point that i met her was um it was something that i was compelled from sort of the cosmos I, I, I for a while there was like i don't really understand what's going on here but i it's like a tractor beam i'm yeah. absolutely drawn into her, into her existence and uh and i just can't let it i can't let it slip away from me yeah, because yeah. it's it's it occurred to me at the time to be as important as breathing like this is a thing i i have to i have to not necessarily lock up but i have to weave into my psyche yeah uh, for the for the for the long haul for good, and uh, it wasn't it wasn't ideal. I mean, it, she sort of being a musician, uh, you know, looking at me, the musician thing was more liability than anything. I think that she, I think that she saw something in me that was that was uh, that you know there was some uh, indelible character right. uh, attached to it, but it wasn't the music thing was absolutely not uh, my <laughs> calling card as, yeah. in terms of you know where where she was coming from. It just became something that, um, you know, you you do a lot of uh, meditating about those things and trying to read the tea leaves, the uh, you know, the, the the universal signals, and uh, that one just kept coming up. Yes, yeah, Wait, absolutely. So, so there's a couple things. One, I want to kind of talk about girl theater and how that kind of grew and how big you actually got. But I'm getting this interesting underlying thread, which I think is really lovely. That you feel connected to the universe, right? Now, a lot of people. The reason I, I say mm -hmm. that, and I'll ask you a question in a second, is that people say it's God, right? And they, but they use that. Right. That's the lexicon they use. There's kind of totally. re religious vocabulary, which is fine if that's how yep. you see the world. No problem, yep. right? But for you, you, it feels spiritual, feels celestial. Like, I, yep. when did you develop this kind of sense of connection to that kind of thing? Um, I. Th it's an it's an interesting question. I think it's always been there, and I have only begun to fully understand it somewhat mm. recently. Yeah. Uh, my my dad passed away in August of uh, of 2016, and it it crystallized what I had always had a hunch about, which mm. was that thing that the the that energy source that is at the core of each individual is is um, indestructible, uh, eternal has nothing to do with the here and now. Uh, it, it only has to do with it just always was and yeah. always will be. And have been created nor destroyed, right? Yeah, so it's like a massive cosmic radio and everybody's got their spot on the dial. Yeah. And uh, and that frequency, again, can't be created or destroyed. It just always was. It From time to time, it gets picked off by by terrestrial creatures here and there. Mm. And, you, and you end up um, crystallized inside of a shell uh, that has a that has a lifespan and a shelf life and and sometimes uh, you know depending on the shell's ability to become sentient uh, that you can get closer and closer and closer to realizing the um, the sort of the divinity of your own um, uh, spirit to yeah. a certain degree and uh, for me that's always kind of felt like well if you have to apply structure to it and if you have to apply a, com a communal understandable functional actionable structure to it then you call it religion and that's mm -hmm. and that's completely fine sure. um uh for me spirituality is a huge thing and religion isn't and mm -hmm. i understand i you know, i understand why it is for some folks and that works for them then it puts them more sort of in contact with uh the essence of their being mm -hmm. uh in in and they, they need that structure and that's fine i'm not saying anything other than it that's that's not how um, is not how that energy is communicated to me most effectively. Right. Uh, it's a little for me. It's a little bit closer to understanding that there is no without without uh, without interjecting a lot of um, self indulgent arrogance. Mm. Uh, there is Dogma, no right. line between God and man. I mm. don't think it's there. It's one 
it's one cosmic energy ball yeah, uh, with little bits sort of shaved off and flung around in the the cosmos so that when we all sit around feeling as though we're not we're not worthy somehow or that we need to uh, we need to uh, hide our heads in shame or whatever it is I hear that as being um, a a dissipation of ultra vital energy mm-hmm. um, that is misplaced uh, that's that doesn't breed positivity yeah and that, that is uh unempowering uh if if anything it it um this this for for me and the way that that uh those things make sense for me this the structure of the religions that i've been exposed to is more of a barrier between me and that energy it's than exact, it is yeah. uh, than it is a, con- a set of connective tissue totally and you know that's again i want more things that I'm are inclusive of, exactly right, right. That connect me to the greater world because it right. you know you ever step out Again, this kind of ties back to scotch. You, you take a sip of it sometimes. And totally. Not to oversell scotch, but it connects you to this time and place. And how is that even possible, right? If we're right. so sanctioned, and nature's nature, it's not me, right? Right. You know, water's water, that's not me. Yep. But if we're all part of the same thing, which we are genetically, yep. right, yep. then scotch is transformative, excuse me, transportative. Right? Yeah. And yeah. many, many things are. Just sitting outside by the lake mm-hmm. is transportative, you know? So... So this is this is what I was picking up on, and I think it's a really, really amazing way that helps us kind of feel open to anything in the world, right? Not creating obstacles that are parameters, rather parameters created by our beliefs, right? Well, so, that's a bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, speaking of you know whiskey in particular, and and the distilled spirits, there's a reason that it's called that, and you know, there's a reason it's called water of life. Mm, there's a reason right. that the clergy were basically the first people to figure it out. Some of the some of the uh, enlightened characters in the uh, in the the historic play of distilled spirits, um, I think they picked up on that. They they picked up on this idea that uh, this sort of thing. Could be uh, granted. They set out to distill from the earth the, right, the right. ability to live forever, and that didn't work out so well. But the result is uh, the the resulting uh, mistake or whatever it is has worked out pretty well for humanity. Yeah, but uh, when you when I I do lots of uh, bar staff trainings and public events and, and front of house staff trainings and and even in retail mm-hmm. and trying to explain to people that one of uh, one of the significant pillars or layers of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is community. Mm-hmm. And so when you can tie this stuff to a, an effort to connect and understand one, one another on a slightly more uh, inclusive and understanding level, yeah. then you're doing something very constructive. Distilled spirits have an, uh, the effect on the, the, the human physiology of reducing... Um, um, uh, anxiety, yeah. uh, anxiety, to, uh, judgments, and inhibitions, like things like yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, if used in moderation, it should. It's sh- the social lubricant thing. It's it's accurate to the extent that you want to, whatever picture you want to paint. Yeah. Uh, in terms of how do you see social lubricant being coming to life? Is it you know uh, strip twister or is it actually sitting around <laughs> and talking to people right. and having some connection with them and having a greater understanding of what why we are uh, in each other's you know life cycles and all those kinds of things and and it's I mean your point is a good one regarding the people who made this I mean I've met them but yeah. it's a concern I'm in the industry for the most part if you're drinking a glass of Ardberg Glamorgy whoever's whiskey it is. The odds that you're going to meet the person who actually created that liquid yeah. is fairly low, but you are you are speaking with them in real time. You are you are communing with them. It's That's right. It's exactly like music. It's exactly. I was listening to uh, Bowie's Black Star on the way over. Oh it's yeah. Like, this guy's gone, but he's not. He's right here in my car, in sense. and I'm I am listening to the sound inside of his head. I'm listening to the essence of his yeah. spirit, and there's something about that that makes you less. Fearful of other people makes you less fearful of death. Makes you more uh, um, more connected to uh, not only the here and now, but the what was and what's a, what it is to come. And, and yeah. putting those things into context, all of those things, you know, in in total, hopefully, uh, have the net effect of of showing people in a very sort of uh, Tibetan Buddhist sort of a way the, mm-hmm. the 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 beauty of their internal life. You know, whatever, however it came to be, uh, or, you know, uh, even if it's 
even if the in individual circumstances are you know in the in the present um, they're, they're suffering greatly or they're right. unemployed or they're homeless or or they're being persecuted for whatever reason or or where they live on the planet is is full of angst and anger and 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 uh, and aggression right it doesn't mean that what is at their nucleus isn't the most potent energy on in the no, in the known universe yeah it's an amazing thing to think about I, and i like that i very much agree with that and that always helps in a conversation right when i think so yeah. when we're in accordance right? right so so then as this has transformed because again i'm seeing this the nucleus is here but i'm seeing the different aspects of it kind of being revealed in different phases and different chapters of your life right? yeah yeah so the music piece the gorilla theater piece you guys were getting big now what does that mean to you what did that mean to you um what we had done, uh, we were we were accidentally uh, sort of not necessarily the children of the the early '90s Seattle movement, but it certainly was difficult to escape it. Yeah. Um, what we had come at it, the direction we had come at each other from the 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 many directions were really really diverse. Our our basis at the time was uh, was a was a huge uh, funk R and B. Mm. Uh, uh, guy, uh, my uh, you know my best friend at the time, who was a principal songwriter. Uh, we'd been listening to to punk, uh, post punk, um, uh, you know all of that stuff. Uh, pretty much an early Cure and those kinds of things, yeah, pretty yeah. incessantly. Uh, and our you know our our vocalist team and eventually our our lead vocalist had come at it from a slightly different direction as well. So when those elements came to be under this sort of uh, in the crucible of the early '90s, uh, it it took a slightly more early '90s sound on than any of us had intended. Yeah. Uh, but I honestly, I I remember sitting in the in the drumming chair and thinking, how do I how do I bring this into reality as hard as I can mm -hmm. how do I create for myself and for the people who are listening to this I suppose that's me um, uh, popular that. guy of course right that should get rid of it um, I toward I mean as the band evolved um, I it the my approach became more visceral mm -hmm. and more sort of my best attempt at controlled violence um and the, and the band got louder and louder and louder right, and louder right. and i didn't i didn't mind that not one bit uh it was sort of in line with my general tendency to take a thing and try to find the edge of the envelope mm -hmm. and then push that really hard yeah um and so it felt right to me and it, it always felt right to me so when when there was interest um independent label major label interest and it was it wasn't big yeah. It was some. There was some. Sure, but that's something modest. Right? And and you know we we had put a lot of time and resources and energy into creating a, a, a portfolio of original music mm -hmm. that we were all very proud of. Um, and you know we did our best uh, to shop it. We did our you know our best. And back in those days, it was possible to actually earn a living as a musician. Right. Right. Uh, and that's that's you know with rare exception, that's kind of gone the way of the dinosaur. But at that point, you did the thing. Mm -hmm. Where you got an agent and you dealt with major label A and R and and uh, the indies were just beginning to happen and and so we did everything we could to try to garner interest in um, in in securing a label deal right and uh, you know it and so we we spent a lot of time on the road we spent a lot of time in the in the sort of the Midwest the college circuit stuff mm -hmm. just trying to uh, who were to, some contemporaries at that point um well honestly um, we were in we were in the Omaha scene. Um, at the, essentially the same time that 311 was. Oh yeah, that's right. uh, we that's shared right. the stage with those guys on a number yeah, of occasions, yeah. and and I, you know, I, I heard what they were doing, and those guys were a micro generation behind me, and, uh, and I was like, I see where they're going, yeah, and this oh, yeah. and there's a real potency there. There's a real, um, there's a real sort of palpable energy and connectivity to it, and I think they're going to be, you know, and of course they were, they're you know, massive players. Yeah. Uh, uh, Chad and I were, were you know, Chad Sexton, uh, right? yeah, because he worked at the drum shop I shop. Oh, no his, his mother uh, helped run it, and um, so I'd run into him on a you know on a pretty regular basis. And he's a really really nice guy. Yeah. he was a he was a drum corps kid, so his chops were always just stunning. Uh, so when those when what happened for them happened for them, it was a combination of a lot of things. There, uh, the the 
the melting pot that they had created mm. stylistically, uh, the the chops that they had honed incessantly, uh, and their commitment to the to the project. It was it, they were the five musketeers. It was yeah. there was nothing that was. And they've just they've remained that. the same band ever since. Yeah, basically. yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Same, uh, everybody's the same member, from what I understand. Yep. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so when that when that band was coming up, uh, we were. You know, we we shared stages and we shared that scene, and and those guys, you know, they ended up getting a uh, deal with Interscope, mm-hmm. uh, which was terrific. At the time that my band was sort of spinning out of control, uh, personality and, thing or, uh, or a little, um, not necessarily interpersonal. That would come later, yeah. but um, in terms of the managing of of each individual's uh, managing of his own yeah. sort of stuff. Uh, that was not going particularly well, mm. and so it it met its it met its demise, and I ended up bouncing from that band to a, a, another band uh, called Digital Sex, which, oh, that's was, right. which was a, which was a pretty big Omaha band in the late '80s. And then they got back, then they reunited, got back together, and, and I joined, got right? recruited yeah, for the gigs. Yeah. So uh, that it was kind of from one right into the other, and that was another. Um, uh, crucible of personality types yeah. that that uh, ended up sort of spiraling out of control and, and splintering out again uh and you know by the by the time that was over it was uh i remember uh being in digital sex it was about a year we were where we were active and uh, and connor was opened for us on a regular no basis. kidding that's crazy. yeah and, and we didn't know what to make been, of him he's like what like 14 he was years like, old yeah, or he was a little kid not a little kid but yeah. he was a kid yeah and we honestly, I mean, I was listening to it. I mean, I sit and listen to him before we went on. Yeah. And it's like, this kid's owning it. I mean, yeah. he's he's absolutely dedicated to this message. And for a kid that age to have that kind of um, commitment right, to a message right. as a solo artist at fourteen with yeah. a with an acoustic guitar and a a we'll call it an unorthodox voice. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was impressed by that. And so when it again. You see the seeds of something, and then when it comes to fruition, you're like, makes sense. Yeah, it lines up. The math is all there, and you can't. One of those things going back to those the 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 discussion regarding what you can control and what you can't. There are elements you can use that the the slogan that you create your own luck, and I do believe that to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. But there's also got to be some organic luck that yeah, that's absolutely. happened. And uh, and I'm not saying that either of those entities were lucky people. Right. They just they just were still standing. It was almost like the last band standing through all the horse crap that goes along with trying to trying to become uh, an, an actual career musician. Yeah. And you know, Tim, uh, yeah, yeah, Tim, same way. Uh, those guys are singularly dedicated to a to a purpose. Yeah, they have a they have a message that they are committed to delivering. Uh, they have supreme confidence in that message, and they're going to deliver it with the most. Um, the, the most clarity and 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 uh, the the most effective envelope around it that that can be generated by that group of people, and uh, I think Rob uh, Rob Nansel's you know mm-hmm. and uh, and um, uh, AJ um, uh, oh. I'm going to think of those guys um, hell I can't think of the name um, anyway the nucleus yeah. of, of of what ended up being Silent Creek those guys were astute listeners they, they and they still are i mean they're they're astute listeners they are um confident uh they also have um they know how to put a business together right. but they also know how to let that business be true to who they are mm-hmm. uh and uh, you know that's that always impressed me i we did uh, as a function of what ended up spinning out of guerrilla theater was a recording studio and a record label and so we d- we did a lot of those same things, yeah. But the combination of personalities and timing and all so this, hard. it just didn't quite happen. We did. We actually signed a couple of terrific local bands uh, that I that to this day I think should have been uh, giant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know we just couldn't we couldn't get around our bullshit enough. Yeah. Oh yeah. To to actually uh, make it a real thing to ma- to make it a sort of a real boy. But the the nucleus of the idea was very similar to what was happening uh, all around us. We just where it where it worked in other instances uh, didn't didn't go quite like we'd drawn so it just, up on it paper. So it was just a quarter of a beat off. Yeah, and that's you know? and that's completely fine in hindsight. It was uh, it, it was difficult at the time uh, to see uh, an action plan come to fruition, but not 
have it be you that it's coming to fruition for. Yeah. Of course, that's absolutely difficult. But it was. It's almost. We don't always see what our purpose is. No, right, no, and that's what happened. Yeah, uh, and so obviously, at some point, the, the band piece fizzles, dissolves, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it. But you're behind a bar somewhere eventually. Yeah, and so you. I remember uh, one of my first days and one of my first legitimate restaurant jobs. Um, the guy who was training me uh, said, "Okay, so you you got to get in a restaurant." Are you uh, an actor, artist, or musician? Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Well, see, <laughs> because uh, uh, I mean, everybody around me was too. It's yeah. a, it's a liquid way of making a living and maintaining flexibility and not living like an absolute pig. Right. Uh, so it appealed to me first because it facilitated what I was really trying to do, and and secondarily, it began to appeal to me in terms of its its ability to connect to your passions and your psyche mm. uh, and your methodology for approaching um, how you apply yourself professionally sure. uh, in a way that was very similar to me uh, to, to being in a band uh, the bringing a bringing a bar or a restaurant brand to life on a regular on a, on a daily basis is is the um, the execution against a vision mm. and a plan using a distinct and de- and defined uh, mechanism in order to do that but it's got to be it's got to be art and craft. You've right. got to do. You've got to do both really well. How how do you feel about? Because drummers aren't always the most social people. But the, no, uh, not right. trying to paint you in a corner here. But soft skills are a massive piece in mm-hmm. the hospitality industry. How did you feel about that? Catering to people that may be assholes. Right. Well, yeah. Um, it took a little while uh, for me to switch gears. Um, I never was. I, I I felt like when you look at um, when you look at that singularity of purpose and that and the idea of the the punk uh, DIY mm. thing, um, I had everything about it except uh, the attitude. Uh, I I always enjoyed I always enjoyed being around people. I was uh, enjoyed uh, uh, you know human interaction to a certain degree. Yes, the percentage of people in public who can be a pain in the ass and that sort of thing is is relatively high, depending on what it is that you're trying to provide for them. Right. But um, I never really I was I was sort of a fake punk to a certain degree because I actually enjoyed people mm-hmm. and I didn't I wasn't I had a, a, the sort of the perfect Midwestern nuclear family. There was no there's nothing for me to rebel against. Right. You know, it was just. I was just kind of having an, an interesting time growing up, and and so being artificially pissed at things and people—that's that's, the, that's um, really superficial. It, it's it's not good. Yeah, it's disingenuous, nah. and I mean, it causes you to to be fake to other people. Yeah, and and the thing about the thing about having a, a message that you're committed to delivering is, it the message has to have content that resonates with other people in some authentic way. Yeah. If you're not, if you don't have something to say, then why on earth will people listen to you? And that's so. Right. That that it wasn't as though I I, mean, I had plenty to say behind a set of drums, plenty, and I still do. Yeah, but I I had just as much, and still do have just as much to say about, uh, the, you know, the process of uh, of enjoying whiskey or or at the time uh, running a bar or a restaurant. There there was something connective to me about uh, the communal aspects of it, the um, sharing the the uniquenesses and. Uh, and simultaneously, the, homo- the homogeny, the human yeah. condition, all those things to me, and all the little tiny nerdy nuances, all of the kind of what is in that bottle? Yeah. What is that s- screwy looking fungus? That What is that? What's the name of that thing? Mm-hmm. What is this crazy Middle Eastern thing? You know, what are these aromas and colors and all these things? It's and- like a gearhead in a sense. Absolutely. Totally. What, yeah. what kind of distillation method? What kind of tubes are in that old Marvel right. Plexi, right? Like, yep. it is, it's, it's an extension of that. And, Obviously, it appeals to you, but it, is there a point in which whiskey particularly became something even more magical and a genre that you particularly really found? Yeah, in? Um, I had gone from um, running a particularly successful place that wasn't mine uh, to uh, buying into a, a place that was was mine yeah. and singularly unsuccessful uh, and and a real gut wrench, kick in the face. Um, you know, moment in time where shit got dark, yeah, uh, sure. and so once that, once that went, once it found its bottom, um, I was in massive debt and unemployed, and, and uh, there was nothing I could do. It's, you know, the thing about the thing about owning your own place is it's the one job you can't quit. That's right. Uh, and so when when things are going straight to hell around you, 
you end up um, growing a fairly thick skin, uh, but you also get resourceful as hell. And, and you find that when things come your way after that, that would have occurred to you in your past life as being devastating and dark and difficult they are not nearly as intimidating mm-hmm. as they would have been because you've seen so you've seen the bottom that's right and i remember yeah. interviewing for my first gig at um at a distributorship which was where the whole whiskey thing came from i remember sitting in that interview and i was i was on my back broke like just absolutely broke and completely unemployed uh my uh i had we'll call it an unusual resume at that point mm. uh, and i remember sitting in that interview and and thinking you cannot do anything to me that I haven't done to myself. Yeah. You need me more than I need you. I understand your business better than you do because yeah. I was one of your customers for a number of years and made a living based on what it, well, attempted to make a living based on the output of your business structure. I know what you need. I know what you need to deliver mm. to your audience better than you do. You And, and so you need me. If you, if you aren't uh, perceptive enough to figure that out, I don't care. Right. And so I like, kind of let it rip in the interview and... Uh, out thinking there isn't any way in hell that I'm going to get that job, and they gave it to me. Uh, and the job ended up being uh, technically on the front end of it was an education position. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, high end spirits. Uh, so I handled all the high end spirits in the in my side of the in my division of the company from the, when they hit the dock till when they left, uh, all inclusive uh, from uh, how they went to the shelf and uh, and uh, how we interfaced with the public and and uh, how we tried to make them make sense to the broader consumer. Mm. Ended up being a labor of Wow, there's a lot A to know about this subsegment. And B, when I share those stories with people, they're genuinely intrigued by it. Right. Uh, and there's the gearhead thing. And there's there's the rabbit hole yeah. uh, aspect that really appeals to me. The trifecta. Uh, yeah. So I, f- I felt like, hmm. And it just, it, because single malt scotch whiskey was the probably the most diverse, confusing, and intriguing subset of uh, the high in spirits portfolio that I dealt with. It became a thing where I spent the majority of my time self-educating mm-hmm. and the majority of my time in terms of education and discussion and public interface in single malt. Yeah. Uh, and so I ended up, uh, as a result of that, um, uh, I have to, I, mean, I got to give some credit uh, to the, the Dundee Dell in Omaha, which is this unassuming little fish and chips place in Dundee that has a thousand single malts available by the dram. Holy shit, so it would draw people to town that would otherwise have really no business being their master distillers and, yeah. and global brand ambassadors. And these people that I wouldn't, uh, you know, distillery owners and distillery managers would show up to s- sort of see this thing and, and get involved with it. And I ended up meeting uh, the Glamour and Jane Ardbeg people because I was already dealing with them on a distributor level. It's just that I began those discussions with some of the, the key people on the distillery side of yeah, things. Yeah. And then I started stocking them at Whiskey Fest Chicago every year starting mm. in 2005. Uh, and eventually when that when the when the brand ambassador position uh, for Glamorgy and Ardbeg expanded from one guy in the US to two, um, oh, well, eventually four, uh, I, I got a call, I interviewed, didn't get it the first time. Oh, actually. really? Uh, yeah. Uh, and so the second time when it went from two to four, um, with three and then four, uh, I did. Get, I got the middle of the country gig, and that was. Uh, I'm on my fourth year now. That's incredible. Yeah, it was just a kind of a thing where I mean, like, like you know, you said before, if you whatever it is that you believe your prescribed path is at 16 or whatever it is when you really start to believe, and it's the trouble with with uh, rock and roll for a lack of a better word yeah. is the the thing about pursuing something with that punk ethos is is that you don't you don't you see building alternatives or or um uh ways out or backup plans as being weak yeah as being uh, an admission a pre-admission of of uh of prescribed it's, failure yeah that's right and so i remember <clears throat> thinking at 16 music is everything it's the only thing that matters to me everything else is at best uh, a uh, a diversion mm. and at, at, at its worst a superfluous waste of my time with the exception of my wife right um, but then but so think about what music is and th- this is the thing it's like why have this set of skills obviously it's only applicable for music right yeah right but then you realize yeah. to strip it what is music yeah. it's comp- composition it's performance it's working with relationships with other people it's being a slightly egotistical wanting to see the world it's all these things yeah so that's a hat that many different positions can put on your head. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And so now yep. you think about it, 
And it's not a massive surprise. You're touring, if you think about it. You're talking about this thing that you love. You're executing it in your own way. The rhythm, the tone of these presentations, educations, these seminars, that is all up to you. Well, and yeah, nowadays, I mean, I I do sort of look at it as a as a as a complete irony. Um, I used to uh, I used to look at okay, why do you get drawn into playing drums? Well, if you think about it, you're on stage, but you're kind of not. You are exposed, but you are surrounded. You have elements of destruction mm-hmm. that can harm people if they get too close to you. Uh, and so you're sort of you're sort of back a house. You're, you're you're the guys in the back with the knives. Yeah. You yes, you're working in a public environment, but you are not stage. You're not center stage. Right, right. And I I liked that then, and I like it now. Uh, because now, I may be out in front of people and talking a lot about uh, about our whiskeys and about drinking in general and right. drinking culture and and Scotland and all those things, but. It is not. I had nothing to do with making it. Yeah, it's only the delivery of of a message that connects people to how that liquid connects to me. Yeah, uh, hired gun. Kind yes, of. Yeah. yeah. And so now, uh, nowadays, you know, spending this year will be 183 probably days on the road. It feels like what I thought I wanted out of music. Yeah. Uh, but uh, not solely determined by me, but I'm I am uh, a mobile army of one to a certain degree. That's right. As long as the distillery folks and the marketing people and the, all those people continue to do what they do well, uh, which they do, then I am uh, I'm sort of a, a rogue unit, uh, and it's it's perfect. It, uh, is, it seems like a really great personality match and a functional match too. But I do have a question. So you pursued music for a while. Obviously, and still, it's it's in our course, right? We can't Absolutely. get away with it, and that caused maybe some friction with your wife. And so, what about now when you're traveling over 180 days a year? How sure. She... Well, one of the things that we didn't do is have kids, yeah. um, and so that has a lot to do with why I get to do what I do now. Yeah. I wouldn't, I couldn't uh, let uh, a child or children sort of grow up uh, with without being a part of that, or just being sort of a um, somebody who drops in on a string and then gets yanked back out and drops yeah, back in. Yeah. I couldn't do it, and it wasn't something that either of us felt um, strongly compelled to pursue anyway. Because mm-hmm. um, so, we're both the youngest of our families, yeah, yeah. and so we had, you know, we have pets because that's what we had. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and it, so now she's always, pretty much always worked uh, sort of bankers' hours. Yeah. And I was always in the restaurant industry, so there was there was from the from the beginning from the genesis of the relationship there was always a, a sort of a, a not a, a a time-based disconnect but a, a, not a not a spiritual based disconnect yeah. so what i do now isn't so dissimilar from what i've always done in terms of when i'm home and when i'm not it's just the commute is a bit longer gotcha that makes some sense where yeah. are you looking at now are you in uh, omaha still, still uh, omaha. sorry on the weekends yeah on most weekends i get back home uh to omaha it's amazing to be able to do that well the thing that has brought us together course besides music and home omaha and saddle creek and all that stuff is whiskey yeah bastions for both of us and you have the privilege in a sense to travel all around representing two amazing scotch whiskeys distilleries right because it's a different right. distillery between yeah Lord same Morangy ownership but two different distilleries got it okay so that was still but that's but that's a two, almost like two different bands right you know it's like yeah. here's the side pro- not that they're side projects but different genres because Glen Morangy and Ardbeg do not taste the same. No, no, they don't. Right. They're totally almost, different jar. Yeah, yeah, they're it's almost they different. almost form the the, the bookends. To That's a right. Really fascinating category. That is absolutely right. So to kind of talk about maybe a few of the labels in, in these categories. Well, one is that you've really graced me with the presence of this Ardbeg Twenty One, <laughs> which you even you would just have a little little <laughs> no, bit of it, right? <laughs> how how rare or how sought after is the Ardbeg 21. Is it something you can just go get a bottle of anywhere you want? No. Uh, the thing about when 21 happened, there was a very small amount of it that was made. Uh, and the, the reason for that was that it was distilled while the distillery was still in a state of some limbo. Mm. Um, it was it was on the road to being demolished and turned into a parking lot. It's one of the few distilleries that actually rose from its own ashes to a certain degree. It was closed for uh, the 80s, uh, it was actually physically closed from 80 to 89. Then it was reopened. It was still owned at that point by Allied de Mac, which uh, which had 
uh, blending contracts with uh, specifically with Ballantines and teachers, mm-hmm. and Ardberg was a part of that. And so um, from time to time, is the 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 real so the serendipity of it was the guy who would come over and fire the distillery up for a month or two a year uh, was Mickey Heads, uh, who is now our distillery manager, but he wow. was working at Isle Azure at the time. So he'd come over uh, from Jura to, to Ardbeg, fire up the stills, uh, fulfill the blending contracts, and then shut it back down for 10 months. Wow. Uh, so this was distilled at a, at a pretty tumultuous period when the future of the distillery absolutely was still hanging mm-hmm. in the balance and was distilled by the guy who works there now as distillery manager. So it's, it's his a song, pretty, but back in the yeah, 80s, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was a thing where future sort of looked at the past and said i got this yeah it's gonna be fine that's you amazing know? Uh, it's, it's it's pretty cool uh so this one i can't remember what the bottling strength is but i want to say it's 46 yeah it's, um, it's what it feels like there's very little of it uh it was released once and once only we only typically do an age statement on our tenure the uh, almost everything else in the ardbeg portfolio in the modern ardbeg portfolio is uh, is not age statement whiskey mm. on purpose uh but in this case we wanted to do something to honor uh, that we are coming up on um, 20 years of ownership of Ardbeg. Mickey's on his 10th year at Ardbeg. Yeah. Um, if you find your way to Ardbeg, the still that uh, Ardbeg 21 was distilled in is now out in the parking lot. Oh, uh, wow. it's, the, it's the still that greets, greets you out in the parking lot. So there's, there's a lot of kind of connective tissue that makes this a, a really, really special dram. Uh, I believe it is uh, aggressively sold out. There was very, very little that came into the U.S. and yeah. it sold kind of right away and it's a pretty pricey bottle, but uh, it'll show up on the auction, uh, secondary yeah. markets uh, at some point. I mean, this is be. just incredible stuff. Uh, yeah, it's 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 damn beautiful. And the, 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 there isn't a lot of opportunity to drink unless you unless you have really deep pockets. Drinking really old art bags is... is not only they're hard to come by, but they are painfully cost prohibitive. Yeah. So when we when we had an opportunity to do it, even as small as it was, a bottling of twenty one, uh, it was it was sort of an honor and a privilege to be able to do that. I think for the distillery, and they wanted to share that with, particularly with the uh, Yardbeg Committee, mm-hmm. uh, and then again wanted to celebrate the you know Mickey's ten years. The uh, the the we were just off the two hundredth anniversary of Yardbeg as a distillery from wow. so. And there was a lot of there were a lot of reasons to celebrate uh, and a lot of reasons to put out uh, something as as painfully exclusive as this is uh, to try to celebrate um, all of those things in a single dram. That's amazing, and you yeah. know, in a way, and I there are plenty of years left for both of us, plenty of years to left to accomplish things. But this is a, is a way I feel like we're kind of commemorating your story. You know what I mean? Um, like that's that's sh- kind of how yeah. I feel about it a little bit. I mean, this is a special set. And your life has been a very interesting one. Well, if if nothing else, uh, it's been a, it's been interesting, and and the 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 architecture behind it is to is to uh, allow it to remain so. Yeah. Um, I've been exceedingly fortunate to have pursued to this point um, a an unorthodox path and not be um, a complete homeless indigent yeah. as, as a result. Certainly could have gone that way very, very easily. Uh, so I don't, I, I don't, it's not that I don't do structure well. I do do structure really well. It's just that I don't, um, I don't find a lot of uh, spiritual fulfillment or, or passionate connectivity in um, things that have distinctive pathways that lead to them. Because mm. there's a lot of, it seems as though the, the road more traveled is traveled away from, uh, is consciously away from, conflict and peril and right. and and dangerous thought and 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 uh to a certain extent the challenges associated with tangential thinking mm-hmm. uh and that i that's what i do i tangential thinking is is somebody else's tangent is my sort of path yeah. and, I, and that's neither for better nor worse i mean it, but it's and, your methodology it's it, your approach it right? is yeah. it, it's uh that kind of i've always been Sort of drawn to people who don't um, who don't feel a need to prescribe to to pathways that are beaten into uh, uh, you know uh, it's like templatized almost yeah you know? yeah, yeah. You, you don't yeah I mean every I guess for me it's very important to remain open to the idea that and there is a there is a thread mm-hmm. uh, that draws you. Uh, it connects you to the arc of your own existence, and uh, and that thread 
isn't necessarily how you strung it out, but you do need to be open to being pulled by it a bit. That's right. uh, you're not necessarily just being dragged along in a in a in a stream of events that you have no control over that that have no that they have no purpose and have right. no direction. It's just there is that your space on the dial is going to generate uh, especially you know if, if you if you're uh, if in the here and now that energy was was fortunate to be captured by a sentient shell mm. then you can really do a lot to to um, celebrate the uniqueness of that cosmic frequency and and allow it to uh, allow it to change the world around you um, a little bit at a time sometimes yeah. in big ways and sometimes in little tiny ways but uh I'm very comfortable in with the idea that I don't know what I don't I'm not trying to slap labels or context. I'm not trying to grow a square watermelon. You know, I'm not right, trying right. to put a box around You're going with it. You're not just square. resisting to resist. Yeah. Which is exactly. again be true truthfully punk, which is accepting things but carving your way in there, right? Right. So, I've got two questions left for you, one of which I'm really excited to ask you. But First is, is what you're here in town. I saw you were in San Antonio pretty recently yep. as well. You're doing a twin liquor yep. tonight. event tonight. What, yep. So tell me what that's about. So that is, um, at Ardbeg, we've uh, recently developed a, a methodology for engaging our consumers in uh, by using virtual reality technology. So mm. tonight's event will be, uh, there'll be about 50 people uh, over a couple of sessions. And we'll slap the VR rigs on them and allow them to take a uh, a tour around Ardbeg, a walk up to Loch Ugadol, uh, wow. a, a dip into the Corrie of Reckon, uh, and and sort of experience a what Ardbeg is about as a place, what Ardbeg is about as a as a culturally and historically relevant chunk of Scotland, mm. what Ardbeg the people are about, uh, and uh, it, it's the most immersive place I've ever been. Personally, yeah. and we since we can't share that directly with people, we wanted to give them a sense, a connective sense of what a teleportative experience drinking Ardbeg. If you're thinking about terroir or things like that, or or putting you in a mindset and a, and a place in time, mm. a glass of Ardbeg will drag you halfway around the world and smack you down on the shores at Ardbeg, uh, better and more effectively than than I've anything I've ever heard that I drank. That's so amazing, yeah. that's what we're trying to do tonight. We are experience for scotch. Yes, yeah, who would have thought? Yeah. Exactly. It's 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 that's a very very clever, wonderfully immersive technology. Clever idea. Well, the last question I've got for you, and this is now a staple in the show. I can't imagine. You, I'm sure you find so many people, so many places, riveting and interesting. But let's just say you've got this. This is a perfect sip for it. But you've got the Ardbeg 21. You're at your favorite bar in the world, sipping this. And you could have a conversation with anybody, living or deceased. Huh. Who might you love to just sit there, just wax poetic, talk live, and have some scotch with? Um, you know, if I could, if I could find myself at the Port Charlotte Hotel on Isla, and uh, if I could keep up, have a conversation with Nikola Tesla. Oh, uh, he seems like he seems like a guy who was so thoroughly and immersively connected to purpose yeah. and connected to um, uh, the fundamental uh, frequencies of, of the planet and, and all the things that he did and invented and, and processes that he pioneered mm-hmm. combined with his gut sense that it that the, the benefit of his wisdom should be given away yeah. uh, uh, to, the, to, the bene- to the greater benefit of mankind. That guy, uh, if you if you could, no pun intended, but if you could distill it down to one guy, there are incredible numbers of intri- intrinsically fascinating people that it would be great to hang out and drink with. But that guy feels to me um, as connected to my uh, aspirations in terms of plug in and give it away. This is obviously a much, much smaller scale, and, and uh, what he did had... Such a profound effect on the on the arc of uh, of the human development and 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 the you know the uh, modern civilization. Right. Uh, what I do in, in little tiny uh, fraction is to try to plug into something as hard as I can, and allow the energy that I draw from it to be uh, to be given away to everybody that I have 
contact with yeah. and and hopefully sh- uh, show them or uh, uh, ex- excite their uh, DNA Neurons, or their magnetism yeah. to the point that they that they're drawn towards it. There's some gravity uh, or some um, some connectivity, passion or, or compassion or both based um, connectivity is not enough. I don't know. I think people actually have a hard time. Um, there's not enough passion in the world. There's not enough authentic passion in the world. Right. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of nowadays even. There's a lot of. There's a lot of anxiety and there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of conflict and there's a lot of reading too many headlines and and uh, and you know uh, reading the wrong tea leaves and and believing the loudest voices and mm-hmm. and uh, so one of the things I try to do is to is to go out and and. Um, exude passion and attempt to repair the social fabric a little bit at a time yeah. uh, by reminding people of how connected they are to one another, how connected they are to process, how connected they are to recreation, yeah. and how how uh, rich and awesome the experience of life can be. It's a, it's a beautiful sentiment, Dan. I mean, that's, cool. I couldn't have articulated it better than myself. <laughs> better <laughs> I myself. appreciate that. It's great, dude. It's been really good chatting with you. Yeah, um, I hope we can do this again. I'd love point. to. We could, there's hours, so much to of talk material about. <laughs> to cover off one. But you know, even <laughs> just just for my main benefit, we'll have to grab some scotch here. Some, yes, some soon for sure. Absolutely, I would so. love that. I, I let me just say, I really, really appreciate this opportunity. The concept that you've sort of uh, nailed about connecting uh, whiskey and music and the, the pursuit of each. Uh, is something that really speaks to me. Uh, yeah. I wish you all the luck in, in pursuing in the future. Thanks so much, Dan. Talk sure. to you, mate. Thanks so much. Well, there we have it. Mr. Dan Kroll of Ardbeg and Glenn Morangy. Very eloquent, very articulate, very thought-provoking chat with Dan, the way he thinks about our purpose, our place, our essence in this universe. And it's always great to talk about the police, 80s music, and Saddle Creek. You know, it's a very influential Thing for me, those bands, Cursive, Bright Eyes, Criteria, all those guys. And it's great to kind of share that love of music and scotch with Dan. Dan is a very captivating guy. I'd love to see more presentations from him. And hopefully he'll hit more whiskey chats here in the next year. And I'll get to sit in. So thanks so much, Dan, for chatting with me. And thank you for listening to Show to V with Mike G. No matter how many times you're thinking in your head, not hot dog or If you're saying, man, Ray Donovan is really a great show on Showtime, please keep dancing.